Hey y'all, this is Emma, the founder of The Rex Project, and you're here today with our Athlete Impact Podcast. At The Rex Project, we are all about educating and empowering athletes to end abuse in sports. In addition to our Athlete Impact Podcast, we also have our website, therexproject.org. There you can learn about how to identify and respond to abuse, as well as hear other athletes' experiences with abuse in sports and various resources. Together, we can end abuse in sports and create safe sports for all. This episode, I am so excited to introduce you to our second board member, Sam Benzing, who uses she, her pronouns. Sam and I met soon after I launched the Rex Project, and I immediately knew I wanted her to be a part of what we're doing. Sam just finished her second year as an assistant ski coach at the College of St. Scholastica and was awarded the Women's Sports Foundation Tara Vanderdeer Fund for the Advancement of Women in Coaching. She attended graduate school in clinical counseling at the University of Minnesota Duluth and is completing a thesis focused on coach-athlete relationships and collegiate athlete well-being. While a student at St. Scholastica, Sam interned at the Tucker Center for Research on Women and Girls in Sports. After graduating, Sam then spent the summer of 2021 working as a coaching intern for the Craftsbury Outdoor Center. Through these experiences, Sam developed a passion for gender equity in sport and working at the intersection of mental health and high performance. All of this to say, Sam Benzing is very cool, insanely smart, and a passionate human who will work her ass off to show up for her athletes in a meaningful and empathetic way. Listen on to hear why I say this, and thank you again for joining. We always appreciate your support, so let's get to it. All right. So you have, you have your own dog, and then you also are a step-parent? What would we call this? Step-parent to another, another dog? Yeah, I feel like we never know what to call it. I'm just the second mother, I guess. <laughs> like, okay, perfect. That's great. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> like, like, yeah, it's my roommate's dog. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, how much time do you have? I could talk about these two forever. Um, <laughs> Yes, yeah. Uh, I have a dog named Lou. He is my 45-pound mutt, some sort of collie mix. Uh, just my, like, adventure buddy overall, like, rock in my life. Um, and recently, he's been really into singing. He actually, I've made him a playlist recently, and in the car, he'll sing along to specific songs. Um, so it can be pretty fun and also pretty obnoxious, depending on your mood. Um, and then my roommate... Um, has a corgi named Pico de Gallo. We just call her Pico. Um, and she is just awesome. And they are the best duo you could have. Um, and she, yeah, they ski with us. They run with us. Um, she cannot ski or run like quite as fast as the other dogs. So she, she has an awesome 10 second sprint. Like if you want to like, she can go, she can hang for like 10 or 15 seconds. Send her to the NFL um, yeah, no, like she, that like 40 meter dash, 40 yard dash, whatever they do, I forget. It's like, that's, <laughs> that is her event. Um, and yeah, they're just like, they're the perfect pair. It's like, if I'm stressed about the future, like my God, I don't know what's going on tomorrow. Anything like that. It's like, I know I'll get Pico and Lou cuddles and like, Aww. yeah, I'm a huge animal yeah. lover, but dogs, dogs, especially. Yeah. No. Uh, so they're pretty great. Lou's just like staring me down. He's like, could you be quiet, mom? I'm going to nap. Who's going to have to wait? I'm going to tell him I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, all right. Big question. What is a fun fact that I don't know about you yet? Man, I've been pretty simple on this one. I guess I'm going to attack this. I really love to bake, but I'd say I'm specifically a stress baker. Like I grew up baking with my mom and loved it and all that stuff, but I'm like procrastination, super stressed, like probably should be getting other stuff done. I just like go bake in the kitchen and kind of just like lose myself for a little bit. And that's like one of my favorite things, self-care. I stick with pretty simple recipes when I'm in that zone, like something that I know so that I can just kind of like crank it out like get it done and have a product at the end I mean the, the end product is very important <laughs> oh okay so how did you get into sports what was like did you do skiing right off the bat um did you try out multiple sports like just what it looked like for you yeah um I feel like you know like most people it was like the like my community around me so like my parents my mom was very like try any sport you want And then maybe she regretted that for a while because I was a dancer. I was a clog dancer for a while. So I think for a while, 
uh, that also could have been my fun fact, I guess. <laughs> um, and <laughs> yeah, but I was like on the local bike team a little bit and I danced, um, but I didn't do a ton. I think what really influenced me the most is that my mom had a rule that I just had to move every day. So I like didn't have to be an organized sport, but I had to like hike or run or go play in the creek or like play with friends, ride my bikes around, like anything. It didn't matter. I had to be outside and move every day for a little bit. Um, and so I feel like that is now a value I've taken with me and probably is a big reason that I eventually found skiing because of the lifestyle sport that like fits to that where I can go do it for like hopefully the rest of my life. Um, so I'd say that really played into that of like how I got into sports was just like this push for movement. Um, I like tried Y ball and like those sorts of things when I was younger, um, did basketball and like elementary school, that sort of stuff, yeah. but none of that really stuck. Um, and I just really enjoy being outside. So, yeah. So tell us what did, tell us about your career in skiing, where, how old were you? Where did it take you? Yeah. Um, so I, grew up in Boise, Idaho, and I found the Bogus Basin Nordic team. I don't even really know how I found it. I remember, like, my family would downhill ski on the weekends. My parents did not even know what cross-country skiing was, really. Um, and I kept being like, I want to do that. I want to do that. My parents were like, we don't know what that is. <laughs> like, we downhill ski, move on. And I guess one day, I my mom always tells the stories. Like, I came home, and I was like, why won't you let me do what I want to do? And she was kind of like, oh, shoot. <laughs> so they, like, signed me up, um, and I loved it. And I thought that I, like, wouldn't want to do it competitively. And I was like, I just have a ton of fun with this, whatever. I remember there were a couple years where my parents, like, my family would go downhill skiing in the morning and, um, like, start their day on the downhill side. And then I would Nordic ski, and then I would, like, beg the lifty to let me ride the lift up where like at bogus it's kind of unique where like the nordic trail goes right by the downhill area and i'd like beg them to let me take the lift up that went up to the lodge that i could like change and then join my family so it was like kind of my own thing i feel like that played a huge role in me loving it too because i'm a pretty independent person and it like gave me that independence as a pretty young kid um so looking back on it that probably had a big impact on it and then i had coaches that kind of like pushed to go more competitive with it. And I think that really went in conjunction with friends that were really loving racing. So I was like, sure, I guess I'll do this. <laughs> um, and then I did it and wasn't really sure if I was at the level where I would ski in college or not. Um, and then my junior year, I was like, I really want to ski in college, toured colleges. Um, and then by chance, I ended up at a school that like a year prior, two years prior, I didn't even know existed. I ended up at the College of St. Scholastica, um, which is small school in Duluth, Minnesota. And, you know, like West Coast kid, I'd completely like thrown out. I was like, I'm not going to the Midwest, um, but ended up on the shores of Lake Superior. And they had a ski team and they currently have a ski team. And um, then they also have an exercise physiology program. And so it was just this, like great fit for me. Um, and I envisioned myself being in the Midwest for four years, getting out, going home, like no questions asked, <laughs> and then really fell in love with Duluth. Um, so I'm still here and I'm currently the assistant coach for them. And that has just been a complete whirlwind, amazing experience going like through that racing in college, you know, like, yes, I had some great results in college and had all region performances and that sort of stuff. But like what I got out of it is this like Duluth community and this love for sport and now this love for coaching um, and having this really special transition with my like current boss from going from like recruit to like coach athlete to now like mentor. And um, it's just been a beautiful experience that was so unexpected when I was like begrudgingly leaving the West to come to the Midwest. Uh, but now I love Duluth and it definitely feels like home. I want to hear you talk about how you got like, because did you ever see yourself becoming a coach? No. Like, did you ever think that for yourself? Okay. Like, no, I think I have. So, you know, I am in the realm of like gender, sport, gender research and have um, done some work with the Tucker Center. And it's funny. It's like, I think I started to click more that I want to be a coach doing that research. And like, because I follow that like the sentiment that so many other women coaches before me have had. So like, no, I totally respected coaches. I thought my co so many of my coaches were amazing. And I, but I never saw coaching as like this viable career pathway. And that's exactly what the research shows is like, people don't see it is you have this high respect. You think it's so cool. And then especially as a woman, you don't have that. Um, and 
luckily I just have had mentors, like pretty much every coach ever has given me the space to coach and have um, that opportunity to do that. Um, and so, yeah, like looking back on it when I was in high school, I like loved working with the like younger kids and always wanted to do that. But I just thought that was something that I like loved to do. And then I actually was just going through files and found like a goal sheet from my freshman year of college and like lifelong goal was like to give back to the ski community. And it's like, okay, like, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, like it was so general. That's like a tangible. Yeah. It's like maybe. But Tan, you are doing that now. Yeah. Like maybe we missed the whole like idea of having more specific goals. There. <laughs> it's just like very general. Um, and then, yeah, like exactly what the research shows. I had people ask me deliberately, like, do you want to coach? You should coach. Do this camp, like coach in the summers, stay at Scholastica and coach. Like I had all these experiences and I got hooked um, and, you know, loved studying exercise physiology and psychology as well. Those are my two undergraduate degrees. So it's like things finally started to click and I got more comfortable being like, oh, the career title here is coach. Like I love exercise science. I love psychology I love trying to blend these and I see a gap in the athletic space and a need for more of a mind-body connection and coaching is one way to do that um and it's been really awesome so far it's like gonna be fun to listen to this in like 10 years and see like where I'm at but the first few years have been a ton of fun and I I'm slowly learning how to like mesh those worlds yeah slowly learning but also insanely qualified um like let's just touch on that tell us about the Tucker Center Women's Sports Foundation uh fellowship and coaching with the U.S. ski team briefly yeah I want to hear about it yeah um yeah so I guess you know part of like I guess the theme here talk about needing to edit the theme here would be that like mentors make the world go around there's no question about that when I think back on things so I'm really trying to lean into it now because they have just like where I'm at now and especially the experiences I've had in the last year, like every mentor has played such a strategic role in that. So starting with, I needed a internship um, for psychology degrees and for my exercise physiology in undergrad. And Maria was like, you should apply to the Tucker Center. And I was like, the, like what? That is a huge research center. Um, so we sat and talked about it. So the Tucker Center is the first research center in the world specifically for women and girls in sport. And they have like three areas that they focus on for research. Um, and um, girls in physical activity, women in sport coaching, and um, women representation in sports media. And I applied to this internship um, and I got it. And I just had the most amazing summer of having Dr. Nicole Lavoie um, and now Dr. Courtney Boucher as my boss. And so it's like, that was just like an instrumental summer of things that I use from that internship almost weekly, at least weekly now, like from presentations or how to talk about things, how to approach situations. And I was able to have conversations with people that were current coaches, people that left coaching that wish they'd stayed in coaching, the leaders for research and coaching, like I got to approach it from all these different levels. So that was just game changing and amazing. And that's when I started to see that trajectory too of like, wait, I really want to coach. I think like that summer in the mornings I was coaching, you know, and like I also was a Tucker Center intern and I was like, wait, I love both of this. And what I really loved about the Tucker Center was that all the research we were doing went like that research was put in a way that was dispensable to the average population. Like it wasn't just staying in this little academia bubble. And I felt like I resonated that. And so I could feel that the research I was doing was directly impacting people. And I resonated with the research they were doing. So that was amazing. Um, and it kind of gave me this passion for things. And through that, I just kind of would get invited into a few more projects um, with like the Women's Ski Coaches Association, um, and stuff like that in the Nordic community. So that was kind of like a game changer in the way that it just gave me this grounding, like basic knowledge and especially how to approach research about women in sport. Um, and then flash forward, I like kept coaching. I had a coaching internship in Craftsbury, Vermont with like the most amazing, wonderful coaching staff. And then decided to go to grad school at Scholastica and stayed on here. Um, and then this year I was awarded, um, I'm a fellow and for, oh my gosh, this is going to be edited. Holy cow. <laughs> this year I was awarded um, the Women's Sports Foundation Tara Vanderveer Fellowship, which is a fund for advancing women in coaching. So it's like knowing that there is a gap and that we need more women coaches and that women coaches are important, right? Like 
we want diversity in any place we are. And so um, it's helping fill that gap. And with that comes a ton of professional development. Um, I got to go to the like Women's Sports Foundation Gala in the fall, attended their Athlete Leadership Connection Conference. I get like weekly or like monthly calls with um, other coaches and the other fellows and we get to talk about things and like bounce ideas off each other, right? Like it's just creates ongoing professional development, which is amazing and has totally like just put me leaps and bounds of leaps and bounds ahead of where I was nine months ago. It's so crazy to look back on that. Um, and as part of that, yeah, I did get to join the US ski team in March for a few weeks. Um, and so I was able to just jump into the World Cup on the last few weekends of their season and just try and be hands-on as a wax tech, see what it's like to be in that environment, see what it's like to be in more of the coaching side of things on the World Cup, interact with the athletes, um, go to like the team captain's meetings or team leading team leader meetings on the world cup see how that's different from college all that sort of stuff and like that to me really applies to this like you can't be what you can't see concept and so you have that with like women in coaching right it's like we probably have less women in coaching because there are less women coaches that athletes see so they don't realize that that's a viable career pathway for them and so that's step one and then step two is once you get into that space like you don't know what's possible till you're there. So I didn't know exactly what it took to run the ins and outs of the US ski team on the World Cup. And like, yes, at the base, it's a ski race. It's awesome. There's all these like similarities, um, but it's still the World Cup. It's still the US ski team. And you're still working with elite athletes. And it gave me that exposure to see what it's like to work at that level, which was also a huge game changer. So yeah, this year, it has been a fairy tale. Um, and <laughs> It's really crazy to look back on um, and just see all these professional development opportunities that have come from this. And I just can't say enough amazing things about this fund. Wow. No, that's, I mean, I've heard, I've heard you share this before, but it is really just cool to hear it like all strung together. And I think like just going back to this idea of like, you can't be what you can't see. Yeah. And uh, I think of like having, I don't know, if also like any coach can do like, you know, great things in just like creating an environment that like is healthy for athletes, health, healthy for other coaching staff mm -hmm. and healthy for all athletic staff. And I think in that, like also preventing abuse in sports and like, yeah, there are athletes that go through their whole career and after they retire, we're hearing this now in the work we're doing, like they didn't know what good coaching felt like. Yeah. Like what, like you're, you were an athlete for a long time. Now you're a coach. Like, what do you, Tell me your thoughts on coachability. Yeah. Um, wow, what like a loaded term. I feel like I'm trying to like collect and see where I want to go. But to me, like <laughs> how most people use coachability in the athletic setting or, you know, even in the business setting now, our day-to-day -day life is this like, maybe without even recognizing it, people are using coachability as synonymous with control of like, if an athlete is coachable, those tendencies that you just listed off of like always saying yes, always trying to do more, always being eager, no matter what, right? Like those sorts of things are like showing that in the coach athlete relationship, there's always a power dynamic, no matter how hard you try to race it, it is there. And so if you are expecting an athlete to be coachable in those ways, you're expecting to have control over them and have them take some of that autonomy out of the picture, some of that choice out of the picture and have them just say, yes, go with it, not question things. And to me, that is like complete danger zone. Um, and that is when someone becomes more vulnerable to abuse. Um, so coachability, I think, can be a really dangerous term. There are things, there are like ways that an athlete can set themselves up to have more success within a team and within their coach-athlete relationship. And hopefully those, especially when looking at the coach-athlete relationship, those things overlap, right? So it's like an example here would be an athlete that's managing their time outside of practice. I'm especially thinking like with being a college coach in the realm of like a college athlete. So like managing their schoolwork, managing their time, feeling like they can get more sleep, feeling like their nutrition's really dialed and, you know, they're not like eating on the run all the time, that sort of stuff, right? So they have this really good time management and that is setting them up to be a better athlete and ultimately probably a better teammate. 
Um, and therefore that probably makes them coachable because they're bringing tendencies to practice that are going to elevate the team where that starts to negatively like be a bad thing if we don't think of that as coachability and think of other things such as like directly your relationship with your coach and directly doing things that your coach asks without thinking twice that's where you kind of get more into the realm of like favors for coaches and controlling coaches behaviors that's kind of what the like literature would go with that you know is like favors for coaches or if you do this then this that sort of stuff i think I was just watching a video where it's, um, a coach was celebrating with players in a locker room. And because they won the game, the players got the next day off of practice. It's like, well, <laughs> why, like, did we have to do something good to recover? Right. So thinking of it that way is like coaches, there's always a power dynamic there. And with coachability, I think when we use that term and how society currently uses that term as coachable, lines up more with control and with controlling coach behaviors. And when we look at what things actually contribute to coachability and what things actually enhance a team, we get away from a lot of those controlling coach behaviors, such as like use of rewards and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Huh. No, I really... I like how you said all that. And uh, I think like really great points. Um, I, and I also, I really like how you lined it up. So like these things maybe outside of sports or maybe like with like, out, yeah, outside of sports, like just recovering, um, taking care of yourself and like nutrition and that like also includes like relaxing and having like lowering your stress levels and all of that. So that way you can show up to practice in like your best place to practice. And- there still is a side at practice, right? Like there still is like, if someone is like performing at practice and how they're interacting with their teammates and coaches at practice, like I wouldn't like, I'm not asking for an athlete to just like backtalk me all the time. Right. But there is something to be said about giving the athlete space to like uh, talk, like engage in a conversation about what you're going to have them do what's on the training plan. Right. So it's like still having that done with respect and still being able to explain why um but making sure that you're not turning this coachability into a because i said so and because i said so you don't like that answer so you're not coachable it's like well we can unpack the why behind it a little bit more and that to me ties into when they leave sport they're in a better place like if they understand the why behind things they can be a little more self-sufficient and that sets them up for a better life after sport entirely and I also think like when talking to athletes about training and I think not only like engaging in conversation with them, but also like, especially at the younger, you know, like maybe like pre-college or maybe even beginning of college of like, depending on what experiences they've had of like telling them why you're doing, like explaining it to them, teaching it to them. So that way too, like, you know, not even after they leave sport, but even just like as they move through their sports career, they can then have that knowledge to have like the independence and have be able to like advocate for themselves and know their body best too. I think it's also really important to be able to have like that language um, of like just know the language and effectively communicate to your coach of like, what do you want to do? And what do you think maybe is a better option? And you're never always going to know it. It's always going to be learning, but I think that's such a huge piece through and also giving all athletes on the team I don't know. My, my thought is like giving all athletes on the team that opportunity and rather than like, like this athlete, you know, she's key. They re- are really de- dedicated to their sport. They're putting in so much time, whatever. They're in like the coach's favor. So you're going to give them that opportunity to like learn and like talk about their training, make changes to their training. But with other athletes who whatever, whatever reason aren't in the coach's favor, it's just going to be like, no, you go to the coach's plan and you have to do the coach's plan to like, that's it. That's the only option. And I think that also puts the people who are in the coach's favor in this position where, yeah, the coach is talking with them. The coach is more open to their suggestions, but also they see the flip side of if they're not, if like, you know, they, they see the punishment, they see, um, all of those things too. And so I think also like to the best of coaches abilities, giving all athletes the chance to learn and be active people, active members in their own training. I like that you phrased it as like giving 
everyone the chance because I think that is a great way for athletes to learn an overall life lesson as well, right? So it's like, we have an open door policy in our office. We have presentations you can come to, right? Like we're going to try and give you as many resources as possible. And if you're someone that wants to take advantage of those, you naturally will probably develop a better relationship with us, but in no way are we forcing you and in no way are we penalizing someone that doesn't take advantage of it. That is, I think, where you get into that fine line, right? Like someone that might not take advantage of it, then might feel like you're penalizing them. And so to me, that's a great time as a coach to open a dialogue with them and talk about like, okay, why are you feeling this way? What can we do to change it? To me, it feels like I'm dumping all these resources at you, right? Like to me, it feels like come in whenever you want, schedule meetings whenever you want. Like I'm available by phone, by text, by email. I'm giving these presentations. We're bringing in experts, right? It's like, how much more can I dump at you? I want you to take advantage of all of these. Why are you feeling this way? And I think as a coach, that's always a really important time for me to stop and check. Like one, think about the hat I'm wearing as a coach and that that inherently comes with a power dynamic. And so how the athlete feels in this scenario is going to be very different than how I feel most likely. And then from there, try and work a way to overcome it. And that to me seems to be the best way rather than just pulling to the like quote unquote coaches favorites or the people that are always taking advantage of the resources. Cause naturally the athletes that are taking advantage of the resources that have are doing that, you're probably going to get to know them better, right? Like you're spending more time with them. Um, and I think, then as a coach, you have a role to uh, like observe that and have an understanding of what you're doing and how that impacts the entire team dynamic. And I think understanding the power dynamics at play are a really important first step to doing that successfully. Yeah, no, I, and I think also like, would you agree maybe coming to it with the understanding or just the assumption that everyone's there to like, coming into it with the starting assumption that everyone is there to do their best. And you might like walk through some things and it turns out maybe some people aren't necessarily like, you know, maybe like you do have an abusive athletic person, staff person who's a part of your team. And it's like, okay, we should look at that. Or maybe you do have an athlete who's maybe bullying other athletes or so on. And, but like, I think coming into it with this idea of like an assumption that, all right, everyone's here to do their best. If they're not, if they're acting in a way that doesn't initially like that, I don't initially like taking a step back and trying to look at it from like rec- through the lens that like, okay, coach power dynamics automatically exist and that your athlete is there to learn. It might look different than someone else's who's here to learn, but it's your job as a coach. Like that's your job. You're the expert in coaching. And I think, yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with that is like, people show up, people are trying to do their best. And if you have team goals that you're behind, like the team made those goals, you can assume that everyone on that team wants to achieve the goals. And one of the great things about being a coach is you're trying to solve that puzzle of how to make, you know, in our case at Scholastica, we have a development team and then our varsity team that's racing on the NCAA circuit side of things. It's like, we have the largest team in the NCAA and we still have four common goals that all 38 members are trying to achieve. And part of what's so great about the job is how do we get these 38 individuals to come together? And so you have to assume everyone's doing their, like is trying their best. You have to assume to start that everyone's chasing after those goals. And when things are wrong, that's when you come together and you try and reassess. And I think as a coach, it can be really tempting to take that all on. Um, But we've had our best success when we bring other experts in like, Hey, this is something I don't know a ton about. And I feel like we're experiencing on this team. Let's bring in someone to consult, like giving away part of your power as a coach, I think is a really important skill to practice and have as well. And bring in the experts in a different field when it's needed for sure. And that would be something that as an athlete going back, like if, if I was an athlete again in those shoes, that is something that I would want. If I was like a parent of an athlete, that I would want to look for. Like if you are in a situation where a coach is claiming to be an expert on everything and not bringing anyone else in, not being willing to consult, not referring you to other sources, right? Like trying to be your dietitian or your PT in addition to coaching, all that stuff, like that to me is red flag. Like 
part of being a good coach is being willing to check some of that ego at the door and being willing to admit like, I don't know. And I need some help with this. Totally. And also I feel like looking out, I've heard maybe it was Maria, Maria or you, maybe it was both of just like talking about like long, just, I feel like how do you as a coach take care of yourself as well and like longevity and how can you like, you know, you're developing all these skills as a coach and you're the longer you stay in, you know, the more you can also like, you know, I've already seen you mentoring like um, your athletes in, I don't know, when I was, when I was with you in Minneapolis and seeing that work you're doing, it's like the more you learn, I'd imagine like the better, even a mentor you'll get. And the more people you have a chance to like mentor. And so like, I think also from a coach's perspective too, of like bringing in experts is taking care of yourself because it takes that weight off of your shoulders to not have to be the expert in anything. And like, Yes, checking your ego, but also just like giving yourself the, I don't know, like the release from you have to know everything. Yeah. It's like, it is what's best for your athletes and it's what's best for you. Having these athletes on the team that were talking to me about self-care as coaches, right? And like, it started out, they were like nervous to ask about salary. They were nervous to ask about how to do things. And then we engaged in this great conversation and I think it's important to balance how that energizes you like I left that conversation energized at the same time that was still a morning of work right like I was still doing research to the, for them and sending them resources and engaging in conversation with them and allowing yourself to kind of have that grace and then being like am I the best person for this and reconnecting with them on campus later and being like hey remember when we talked about this like I learned this from this person here's that resource like let me take some of this weight off of me for multiple reasons, one, to protect myself and two, because it might be what's best for them. And ultimately that's what's really important about this situation. No, totally. I think like everything you just said there too, is just like boundaries and like both athletes, like understanding too, of like, how do they, like, what are boundaries that athletes can set with their coaches and what are boundaries that coaches and athletic staff should be setting with athletes. And idea that as an athlete you have to sacrifice your whole self and also I think like you know we're in this stage of like sports where it's like everyone's doing like you know just depending on the level but everyone's doing like how can you gain a millisecond like as long as you get across that finish line first that's all that, that matters and so it's like people are you know there's always it can it can feel like there's always going to be someone who's willing to to harm themselves over to to get that goal and if you don't harm yourself then you don't have a chance and I think like that's also kind of feel, feels like what, what sports have become if they've reached this level of like if you can push yourself the more pain you can handle the better an athlete you're like or suppose like supposedly like the better an athlete you'll, you'll be and it just like it's of like, how do we get athletes to create these boundaries earlier and like know themselves and often and come back to these boundaries and practice them of like, before they're put in that situation of like, you know, they're in an injury and their coach wants them to race through it. So that way, like, they, they already have maybe set in stone, maybe at least like more firm than it would have been, have thought about it and know like, no, I want to put my longevity before this immediate result. Right. And yeah how much time do you have <laughs> there's so many ways to go with this right it's like oh my god starting like totally. back I it's a few things that stick out to me like one as a coach trusting that the athlete knows their body best with that in mind they're gonna make decisions and they're gonna make mistakes <laughs> and like part of being a coach is being okay with that and understanding that a huge part of your job is helping work through the aftermath of that and making sure they learn something from that. Like when I think back on my own career, it's when I was having my worst times that my coaches were making the biggest impact on me. And those are the lessons that I bring the most into my coaching now. Right. Um, and so when it's just like the athlete knows their body and there's research to suggest this, um, especially from like the physical side of things, um, whether it be like how hard an athlete's training, whatever's going on, like they know it. And where we get into this 
dangerous side of sport is when we push people past the point where they're not sure if they know it anymore and they start to ignore those cues. And we see that a lot in competitive athletics. And so I think one thing coaches can do is like help the athletes engage in more conversation about that. Like an athlete comes to you with a new plan. Um, you know, like for me, I'm looking at it from like an endurance sport from a skiing specific thing. So they might come to me with a new idea or they come in with like really rigid boundaries of something and just like be able to tell me why, like engage in a conversation about it and not a conversation where I'm completely challenging, but where I listen to them first um, and understand that and then get them to pay more attention to their body. Like, okay, you say that this is a workout that when you're tapering and you're heading to a championship, like this makes you feel awesome. And this is what you want to do. Like, how does that make you feel? And see if they can answer you. You know, like sometimes they're like, I'm good. It's like, okay, like, let's break that down a little bit more. Like, what about good? Like, let's bring that body awareness back. And I think that's where some of my like training um, on the clinical counseling side of things comes in and meshes well with my exercise physiology training side of things. Is this like, okay, here's what some, you know, exercise science, what some literature says, like it says that this workout should make you feel awesome. Cool. Let's see what happens. And then they say, okay, I feel awesome. It's like, well, in what ways? Because also if the athlete can identify in what ways they feel good or bad or what works for them more specifically, we have more building block to go off of. We have more points. We have more things to aim for and work with. Um, And so I think it's great. You'll see that. I mean, already in high school, athletes are starting to lose track of how they feel or what makes them feel good or pushing towards that, like podium. Like they want that. We've been told we get into this all or nothing thinking approach. And just kind of like backtracking and still having these like conversations that are like podiums are awesome. We like wanting on podiums, we're achieving, we're working for high performance, but what can we do to bring some of that body awareness, um, both physical and mental back to you so that you, the athlete themselves, they know their body so that they're in more control of what they're going through. And then from there, when they know that they might have an easier time setting boundaries. So I think of like, if I as an athlete, there'd be a few different boundaries that you could like types of boundaries. You might have boundaries that are really rigid and you might have boundaries that are less rigid. So one example I can think of is like an athlete. I keep defaulting to this, but they come in and they say that a certain interval set is what makes them feel great. And you're like reading this as the coach and you're like, how are they not so tired from this? Like no way is this best for them. And you engage in that conversation and think about like, what harm am I doing? You know, and this is where like some of this like clinical counseling brain and my training basis and that comes back in is like, am I doing harm when I ask them or like, okay, so you think this is what makes you feel good? Like, what if we tweak it this way? What if we try this? That sort of stuff. And know that they might fail and the athlete might fail. And like, how can I help them learn from that? So like going back to almost that like medical principle, like do no harm, (laughs) right? Is like, what's a way that as a coach, like part of what I'm doing is pushing the athlete a little bit. Right. And I'm like trying to push these boundaries. Um, and then as an athlete, like understanding how that makes you feel like trust your gut. Like if your coach is really pushing some boundaries and that's when you feel awful, trust your gut, like, okay, like a backup, that's really okay. And then you might have boundaries that are non-negotiable at all. So to me, that might look like, um, an athlete that, I'm working with athletes that are all over 18. So I'm not following, not, (laughs) it's a dangerous way to say it. I don't have to abide by safe sport guidelines legally. (laughs) There are plenty of safe sport guidelines that I am following, but one such as like having another adult in the room, I legally don't have to do because they're over 18. Um, And for some athletes, they might be more comfortable with that or just creating a space. Some athletes might always want a door open when you're meeting. Others might want that privacy. And that could be a rigid boundary for that athlete. Other athletes might want like their rest day. They might not want to have any coach contact. You know, they like maybe mid season or maybe in the fall, they might have boundaries around that that protects their mental health. Um, So if you're an athlete having those rigid boundaries And then still trying to think about what are times when maybe it would be helpful to expand on that and what might be a smart time, you know, like if I feel like I have this rigid boundary, should I completely flip what I'm doing the week before the NCAA championships? Like, probably not, (laughs) you know, like, when should I play with that? But I do think you're totally right. We talk about boundaries as like consent around sex. We talk about it and barely, right? Like, I am so curious how many other people's colleges showed them the T video. You know, like 
how many times was like, you were talking about boundaries, right? You're talking about boundaries and consent and they don't even say the word sex. They talk about it as shoving tea down someone's throat. So it's like also expanding, like where we're starting at is such a low baseline and talking about it. Like, I don't think I wouldn't have had any clients in clinical counseling internships if I, if people were great at setting boundaries. That's so much of the work we do. That's so much of the work that we're teaching people as coaches as well, right? Like we're teaching people, how do you negotiate if you're going to miss class and your professor thinks that no matter what, you have to take the exam before and you're someone that wants to take it after the trip because that works better for you or vice versa. Sometimes there are professors that want you to take it after you're someone likes to take it before. That's a boundary that that professor has set. Now let's think about your boundary. You like to have it done before, right? And so as a coach, you're in this unique role and it's so unique because of that power dynamic. Um, to help people learn how to set boundaries and when is it an okay time for those boundaries to wiggle a little bit and ultimately the person that makes that decision and knows is the athlete how you talk about like just like the fluctuation that you can have in like in your boundaries and also like I think of like well with like talking about like the interval set of like you as a coach you you know you want to push your athletes like maybe they've been doing like five intervals for like the past like whatever two months they've like gained fitness and now it makes sense for them to do six intervals but this athlete is like you know maybe like nervous whatever they feel confident with five and so like you know they're maybe pushing that like boundary as a coach of like all right like you know and I think that's even more of just like uh, we we say pushing boundary and I'm even hesitant to use that as like maybe you're more like encouraging them of like no like hey I think you've gained fitness I think you're ready to go do this six too because like and I think that's where you balance like encouraging versus pushing boundaries. You know, it's like, where are you having this fine line? And I think when you're pushing an athlete over their boundary, there is something there that makes them feel like they have to do it. Somehow that power dynamic is being abused and you've gone beyond encouraging. You've gone to a point where they feel forced to do it for whatever outcome they want, right? They're like, might be in this pattern of all or nothing thinking now of this like, okay. I have to do this in order to achieve this and everything else doesn't matter. It won't happen. Whatever it might be, it's just like, there's this one pinnacle and that's it. Um, And so I do think there's that fine line between encouraging and pushing boundaries. And that's where that self-reflection as a coach comes in. Like you might want something really bad for that athlete. And ultimately all you can do is encourage and kind of know when to back off because if it's a really driven athlete, they're probably going to try and push the line pretty hard. And so you have to figure that out. And that's one of the fun puzzles about coaching. Boundaries and how do you navigate boundaries? And really even more, how do you navigate like, just like the dynamics that happen when you're working with so many different athletes who have so many different athletic goals. Some may be like, they really want to get better and like reach this result. And others might be of like, they're here and they do want to improve. They want to be fit. They want to, but they want to be a part of a team and uh, all on. So like, how do you navigate to like, I think the, like, I think so much of like sports too. And like of sports in the past is the importance and effort has been put in the athletes who want the results. And uh, well, that makes like sense in some ways, but it's also, it does, I mean, get into that all, all or nothing pattern and like, just automatically develops a coach coach athlete relationship that's stronger with athletes who want the results over those who are maybe less result oriented. So how do you navigate? Like, how do you navigate that? Like, how do you keep those relationships? And how also how do you navigate like having just different relationships with different athletes? Yeah, if I had a perfect answer to this, it could just be like mic drop on my career. <laughs> like, I'm done. <laughs> I don't like. Um... We would quote. <laughs> Um, yeah, I would love to start by talking about like how I approach boundaries as a coach, because I think as a young female coach that is still coaching the college team that I'm an alum of, I have a lot of experience with this and it's been a huge learning, um, stage for me. So yeah, I mean, with in a year span, a little rocky cause COVID and we didn't have practices and I was captain and there were captains practices, you know, like. I'd say I had a little different transition than your average year, but 
I go from being an athlete to coaching. Um, and that right there is a big role transition. Um, and so, you know, there are like rigid boundaries that we have on our coaching staff. We have a staff guidebook and in there it's like, you can't party with the athletes. If I end up at a bar with, and the athletes show up, I'm going to leave or, you know, like that sort of stuff. Very basic common sense stuff that you'd also be surprised how many like staff members at like other across all sports ignore that. Right. But like, that's something that's important to us. And we have a staff guidebook for those nitty gritty things. Um, the thing about like the ethics of a question like this is there's never an answer for every single situation, right? There's never a book to refer to. So I, when I decided to coach, um, I like had a conversation with our team. Our women's team was super excited. They'd kind of, I think like cat got out of the bag somewhere. They'd kind of brought it up to me first type thing. And I was like, cool, you know, check the box. Like, great. We're going to be able to have a pretty solid relationship. Um, our men's team, I had a call with our like key team leaders, the group of them and just said like, Hey, <laughs> here's where I'm at. I really want to be a coach. I really want this to be my career. Maria is a kick-ass mentor and I want to be here to learn. And like, how are we going to make this work? Like, what are your boundaries and what are my boundaries? What this? Um, and I don't expect everyone to do it that way. I think that's like a very me way to handle that <laughs> for sure. But that was something that was important to me just so that I knew like what their limits were and what they were expecting. And then with that, yeah, I was like agreeing to no longer party with people that maybe two years before, you know, before COVID stuff that I was going out with. And so also making that decision for yourself. And that's a decision that you have to make. And like coaching is by far not the only profession where you have to make decisions like that. Like there are plenty of other professions, especially even the medical field and helping professions, which coaching is a helping profession where you have to make that decision. So what's me, what's different to me is like, it's not really an ethics code for coaching. Like if I, someone else did this in another profession, like you would be in legitimate trouble for going and partying with someone that was a client. And like in coaching, we don't have as much of that. And you're kind of creating your own rule book and deciding what works for you. And to me, like I have that boundary there. So that I think was really interesting to navigate and has been different for every athlete. There were some athletes that it was like, bam, coach athlete relationship, not even really a transition. They wanted to learn from me. I wanted to learn from them. Awesome. Great. And there were others where I'd have some more distance. And then we have slowly gotten to a point where we have more of that coach athlete relationship. And to me, it really came down to respecting their needs. Like we have a great coaching staff, like that athlete doesn't need to depend on me. Like <laughs> there are a ton of other awesome coaches that will help them. You know, it's like that self-reflection or um, just like, if I have something, even just being like, Hey, I think I have something to work on with technique. Like, how does this work? And really easing into it with athletes that I'd overlapped with. And I think it's actually important to talk about this because when I was going through it, I felt kind of alone. And then as I was, you know, like looking and meeting more people in professional development settings, like it's not uncommon for athletes to go from athlete to coach of their team. Um, it's just like how you want to handle it and how you want to approach it. So there are plenty of people that wouldn't have done any of what I just talked about. And they would have just basically kept things as normal, but showed up at practice. Um, to me, I wanted more than that. I really wanted to dive into coaching. And so I personally felt like that meant setting boundaries. So I think that's important. And then like now that I don't, you know, I'm not in that exact situation. Um, I'd say I think about my boundaries almost every day. Like how much do I want to tell an athlete when we're in a conversation? And I go back a lot to what's beneficial to them. Like they don't need to know everything about my personal life. I don't need to know anything about theirs. And like, we don't want to know everything about each other's personal lives. Like this is still mostly a professional relationship. And like that, like we don't need that. Um, and so thinking of that and reminding that of like, it is a unique professional relationship because it's a helping profession, but they don't need to know everything. And I don't want to know everything. It is, we're way better off if we don't. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Huh. Thank you. No, thank you for all that. And I don't know. I know you, I know you said that like, you know, maybe other coaches who are like, have, you know, just made that athlete to coach transition and like how you really want to like just dive in to like being this coach and that's, you know, and just being who you are too. And like, that's why you set those boundaries. But I also think there's a point too of like, just getting back to what we were talking about earlier, like if you, 
if you don't see it, it's so much harder to be it. And I think like, as a coach, even like going from this like athlete to coach relationship and with you setting all those boundaries you did too, in some ways, I think that's a really awesome opportunity that you took, that you took advantage of to show your athletes that these are boundaries that should exist in coaching. These this is what like, you know, or, you know, these are what boundaries can look like and how you can navigate a coach athlete relationship too, especially with the people you overlapped with. And I think that's like, it's just going to be much more of a stark comparison for them. And so, I don't know, I would say to like, if, if an athlete is going from like to, to a coach um, and coaching people they overlapped with and all that, and like that could be a really good time to like, you know, not to like just suddenly give them all the cold shoulder, but just to like set those boundaries or at least to have a lot of conversation or like, you know, some conversation around it. So if you are maybe still like, you know, going out every now and then to party with them or something like just like have it be very clear and very like I think just upfront and discussed um because it, it's a hard line to navigate I guess when you go make that immediate transition but of like having a lot of clarity and openness and just transparency around it too right right like engage in those conversations and like I think step one is like there will be awkward times right like I went from doing intervals with this person to being like, can I pick apart your ankle flexion and your knee bend and how that's correlating to where the weight on your foot is? You know, it's like, you should totally listen to me as I'm like learning to do this better. And like, I'm trying to get better. But I also think there's something to be said of like, as much as it is a professional relationship, you're still on a team and you're still trying to get better. So having that, like having that open conversation allows that and allows that modeling that I think goes back to what we've talked about before. We talked about earlier is this like, when people are sitting there and they realize like, wait, maybe I, I haven't experienced good coaching or I only know that coaches are supposed to be scary and mean and also maybe be my best friend and be at parties with me. And I can only get them to like me if I'm doing social events with them, right? Like there are so many complicated contexts to contexts to coach athlete relationships. Um, and so acknowledging that there will be awkward parts. And then if you feel like that wasn't modeled to you, like what do you wish was modeled to you? And how can you overcome that? You know, like, how can you find resources for that? And I do think that's a place that the Rex project can come in of like, wow, I wish that like, I did not experience gaslighting and I experienced more like autonomy and like choice and what I was doing and more care from my coaches, like those sorts of things. And so it's like having a place like the Rex project to help you recognize those signs and recognize those things so that hopefully less athletes have those thoughts once they're in retirement. Um, and for the athletes that are transitioning to coaching, you know, they can think about more of what they want to model and what they want to be like. And that might be really different than some of your other coaches. And that's okay. That's how we know that change is happening. I love that. That's how we, that's how we know that change is happening. Um, okay. So we talked about a lot. <laughs> um, I think one thing <laughs> I really want to get your, I don't know, thoughts on, I've already heard your thoughts by, I, I want to hear them again. Um, handling food periods and body image with your athletes and I think when I heard you that this was one of the main things that stuck with me from talking with you and talking with some others at the conference of like you know in in my experience like my coach just like with food of like yes he was doing a lot of stuff on the you know a lot of stuff in conflict of when he told me to eat more that like made it really hard made me like grip on the control but like there's also like you know, it's like, it did seem like he was really caring about me. Like he's telling me to eat more. And like, he talked to me, we talked about my period. Like this was like, maybe this, the odd thing with like, I feel like so many male coach, even sometimes probably female coaches are like, they don't talk with their athletes about periods or it's really awkward or it's just like this big thing and not much good conversation happens around it. But like me and my coach, we talked a ton about my period. He knew I hadn't had it in like, you know, a while and like all of that. And uh, like, I just became, I was an open book and uh, I was like, oh great. I finally have, like, I have a coach. He's talking to me about my period. He's taking interest in my medical care. He's taking like, he wants me to see a doctor who's realistically at the end of the day was not going to get me pulled from skiing. But at the time it was like, you know, wanting to see a doctor that... I thought 
because of what he was saying and the eating disorder was like, you know, he was actually listening to me per se and all of that. And it's like, and you wanted that NCA podium. We just talked about that, right? Like you wanted this NCA podium. And so you had a doctor that wasn't going to pull you. I wanted that NCA scenario at the time. So badly. Yeah. He was like willing to ignore like what he did, like what he talked to my coach about and the way he went about my medical care and ignore like all these test results that showed I was not healthy. And uh, it's like, and I think also with like my coach too, of like, you know, he, it felt like with having him involved in my medical care, like, Hey, not only did he care about me and like talking, we talked about periods, but also like, it kept me like, as long as he thought I was okay, it felt like this protective bubble. And as long as he was like heavily or just like involved, heavily involved, whatever of like, it was a protective bubble. So I could keep being this athlete that he and I were setting out for me to be. And it, and so I think like t- at the women's coaches symposium and just like hearing like, you know, like how I heard you talk about like, oh yeah, like talking about p- periods and foods and like, you know, you, you'll talk to your athletes about it for sure. Like it's something I feel like we like can't ignore. We shouldn't ignore it. Um, and, but you're also involve an expert. You will have that athlete, like, yeah, you will encourage an athlete, but you'll, they'll also be talking to an expert at the exact same time. And that it was just like, so huge. Like you didn't take over you uh, like, and you got them that, that care. And I think that was just like, seems so obvious, but it was like, yeah, like a coach is, you know, trying to talk to their athlete about health and periods and, you know, food. Like we already talked about this earlier, some, but it just like, you know, supporting that athlete. So, you know, and like, maybe that could look like altering training plans so they can see a therapist and, you know, help navigate food and so on. And, you know, maybe they do encourage them somewhat to eat more, but it's not forceful it's not overarching. It's not done in a lot of conflicting ways. And it's also done with an expert. Like it's an expert that is like the expert takes front over the coach in that situation. So I already said a bunch of my thoughts. What are your thoughts? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I just, the theme, again, I told them that is, like, let the athlete be the expert on their body. If you're, like, telling them how much to eat, all that stuff. Like, I'm not a dietitian. Sure, I took some sports nutrition classes as part of a degree. But, like, cool. What's that allow me to do? Maybe have a greater understanding of a few things. But beyond that, I'm not giving recommendations. That is not my job. Um, with that being said, like, knowing when to kind of, like, refer out and allowing the athlete like if if you're an athlete listening to this have the trust that if a coach is talking about your period too much if you're a female like woman athlete or like if a coach is talking about how little or how much you're eating like too it feels like too much trust your gut on that you know like yes I'm checking in with our like women athletes that have periods about their period, that sort of stuff. But like, I'm not doing it every practice. I'm not even doing it once a week. You know, like I'm doing it when it seems to come up in the right way. If it's a preseason meeting, we're talking about training, that sort of stuff. Like, okay, let's double check. Are you getting your period regularly? Knowing that sort of stuff. So if you're an athlete listening to this, like trust your gut on that. Like you're the expert in that. Um, And then as like a coach learning of how to talk about these things. I think there's a really cool transition that we're feeling where they are being talked about more. At the same time, when I've worked on our like student athlete development programming, I have been really surprised by some of the barriers I hit to bring this information to our student athletes um, because these topics are triggering and they can be really difficult to talk about and they can be difficult for people to hear about. So you still have to do it in a way with respect. It's like, I'm not. Great. So I'm in graduate school for clinical counseling. I'm learning how to diagnose an eating disorder. I'm learning all those nitty gritty things. That's not the hat I'm wearing as a coach. That is like, there's no way for me to not bring in some of my bias from that. But instead, I'm like, how do I make this information that's digestible and relevant to the athletes? And so to me, 
when I'm coaching, that means like talking to them about like the spectrum of eating behaviors and when are we getting more in the territory of red S and that sort of stuff. And if I have any concerns, like we can take them to the eating disorder clinic when that athlete is ready. Like I can't drive them to that door when they're not ready, but when they're ready and they feel like they need to go there, absolutely. We will drive you there. We'll take you there and we'll be there as long as you need. So again, it's that like referring out and understanding your boundaries, but in order to get to that place, you have to talk about it. You do. You just like absolutely have to bring up the basics. You have to make sure that all your athletes understand what red S is and understand that they could be intentionally and unintentionally underfueling and understanding the impacts of that. I absolutely love like the IOC when they release their red S impact statements, which another one should be coming out shortly, but um, when they release them, they show all the physiological effects and it's pretty much every system, like every metabolic system in your body is really like negatively impacted. And it's all one sided arrow of like, we know what comes first, this under fueling chicken and the egg, we know here under fueling negative impacts. The one arrow that's double sided is for your symptoms of mental health, like your brain health. And I really love stressing that to the athletes of like, we often talk about fueling or underfueling is just this like cut and dry eating disorder or disordered eating. And this is bad. It's like, sometimes you might be stressed and you don't necessarily want to eat. Like you might have a stress response. Other people's stress response is that their appetite is not suppressed. They want to eat a lot more. Right. And that's about, again, being the expert in your body and knowing what you want. And so as a coach, if I bring those resources to the athlete for them to be aware of, then they can start to learn their own body. Then they can start to be like paying attention to their longevity in sport and in life. And then if there are more red flags, I can have a conversation with them. I can bring that up and I can refer them to the experts. And so I would say I, as a coach with a background and training in clinical counseling, I'm always balancing this fine line. And like, sometimes I'm fighting direct urges of like, oh my God, they need this. <laughs> but like, that is not my job as a coach. Like I have to completely take that hat off. I'm providing them resources to know. Um, and it's especially important to talk about, like talk about these subjects with all genders and talk about it in an open way where it's a fact of life. Like a person that has a period will get their period. That person also might be on birth control. That birth control might affect their period. And that's a thing. But if an athlete starts to get to a point where they're like, my coach is talking about my period all the time. Like if your gut says that, then totally stop. And that's where some coaches listening might be hesitant be like, well, I'm just going to stay away. <laughs> like, I'm just, I'm not going to talk about it. Like I want to sway to the other side and not do that. And I think that can, that's a protective reaction that you're feeling to protect yourself and maybe even protect your athletes. And that's totally natural. I think the key there is to, again, do that cost benefit analysis of like talking about just telling your athletes that periods are really important for a lot of different factors of bone health and well, overall health, including bone health there, but like that bone health, I think is the one that's pressed. <laughs> bone health is what's pressed the most. Right. And so it's like, they're important for a lot of different systems in your body. Um, and knowing as a coach that bringing that up and just bringing that awareness is important. Then when an athlete comes to you and is like, Hey, I haven't had my period in three months, you know, all this sort of stuff. Like I have my period, I'm feeling super anxious. I feel like my dig digestive system is a wreck. My heart rate's a wreck, right? Like they might start listing off all these symptoms. Like, okay, you're not diagnosing. Let's refer you out. But because I've opened up this conversation of just talking about it, that's when the athletes might start to feel like they can come forward. And you're still going to have athletes that don't feel like they can come forward. That's where they're at. You meet them there, you know? Um, but if you're a coach and you're listening to this, like I, it's, to me, it's always worth taking trainings and reading about how to approach these subjects with athletes. Like if you're worried about an athlete, talk to them directly, bring up this awareness with them. And you can do it in a way that is trauma informed and not really upsetting. And chances are they will be, feel threatened in some way. You're still dealing with that power dynamic. If they have an eating disorder, like, like you said, you were willing to do anything to get on that podium. Like you wanted a doctor that was going to allow you to keep competing with your broken back. <laughs> um, but still having that awareness of like, I'm going to try. And there are trainings out there. Um, and you can start to read resources that 
help direct you to that, like how to have those conversations because they are protective conversations and they are helping for longevity outside of sport. So that was a very long-winded answer to say, I do talk about it and I basically just try and refer out. <laughs> Unless like, I like start the conversation, hand over resources, it becomes something beyond, and that's a medical concern. Okay, let's refer you out. Let's um, note of like, and what I was thinking is like, what is one thing coaches slash coaches, athletic staff can do to look after their athletes' well-being? One thing to go back to is just give the athletes choice. Like, know that sometimes it's really hard as a coach, like they're going to screw up and know that like, you're also going to screw up. And so giving space for both of you to do that and make choices. And I think that goes back to like having more trauma-informed coaching. And we're seeing more resources be available for that um, like line of coaching and using those skills, but giving choice, like really honing in on that autonomy and knowing that's where growth will happen. And then like we were talking about earlier, that line between encouraging, like that goes really well into that. So like give the athletes choice so that they can make their decisions and they're the experts on themselves. All right, all that's a wrap on our second episode. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Sam for coming and sharing her all, all of her knowledge and thoughts. I'm always a little bit awestruck whenever I talk with Sam, just with her knowledge, experience, and how lovely of a human she is. Our next episode comes out Sunday, June 11th, where we'll announce our third and final board member. We are so grateful to have you all and we'll see you soon.